Welcome to the Desert City Church Podcast. What you are about to hear is a sermon given at one of our Sunday gatherings. We invite you to listen to how Scripture is forming our new church. We are in a series entitled Desert City Originals, and we are talking about our vision, DNA, and dreams as a church. We are almost three years in and feel like we're just getting started. Our hope is this message will help you become more like Jesus. As you pursue God, may you find your true self. If you have any questions or things we can pray for, let us know. Grace, peace, and much love. Well, I was told to go quickly today as uh, the Cardinals are playing. I always know that if you go to church on the, at the same time that your team's playing, they win. So I think that gives you points with the guys upstairs, the man upstairs. Um, so yeah, the journals came out today. Uh, we don't want to like push those on people, uh, but we're kind of like pushing them on everyone. Uh, the, uh, I, I think they're going to be a great discipleship material for us this fall. Um, if you look ahead, first of all, they're really well done, um, which uh, was surprising for like local churches to put out something nice. Uh, some of our network churches came together to do this, uh, but the next four sermon series leading up to Christmas are in there, and you can use them for notes on a Sunday morning. Uh, there's like kind of a, a weekly, like you can uh, uh, kind of like a daily devotional that you can knock out throughout the week, and then there's discussion questions that you can use either for your group or your family. Um, just to kind of process what we're talking about on Sunday, on Sunday morning. And so um, our hope is that you would dive deep this fall, uh, that you would spend time in prayer and in God's word. Um, and we think when we do that, uh, it, God forms us to be a certain kind of people. And so our hope is that that will just be helpful in the process of spiritual formation. Uh, we're starting a new series today, and I want to open with a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes about, uh, well, you'll, you'll hear it. You may have heard it before, but it goes like this. It's a big book, full of big stories with big characters. They have big ideas, not least about themselves, and make big mistakes. It's about God and greed and grace, about life, lust, laughter, and loneliness. It's about birth, beginnings, and betrayal, about siblings and squabbles and sex, about power and prayer and prison and passion, and that's only the book of Genesis. It's a quote by N.T. Wright. But I love this quote, and I've used it before, but it reminds me that the story of Scripture is a dynamic story. It's a big story. And it's, it's the story that is alive and active. And as we read it, there's something that resonates within our own story. We we read stories about these people that lived thousands of years ago, and yet we find that there's something that we identify with as we read the stories. I think that storytelling is an extremely, it's just powerful. I love a good story. Uh, I, I grew up reading Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite stories. Uh, yeah, we got some, we got some uh, Middle Earth fans in here, all right? Uh, I remember I, when I get into a story, I am like completely just, I, I, I'm like in another dimension. I remember when my wife and I first got married, uh, 24 was the big show. And uh, it was before like we'd really get Netflix, so we would, we would go and like rent 24 from Blockbuster. That's like how old that goes back. And we'd watch it. And I remember like I, I just had started working in a church and we we're watching 24 and like, you know, there's always like this terrorist attack going on. I remember one day in staff meeting, I had a prayer request, and I was like, you guys hear, like, what's going on, like, over in L.A.? And I was like, wait, that's not real. I was like, 
like, I'm so into this show right now that I'm, like, praying about, like, Jack Bauer's safety. Like, we just get, like, entranced in this show. You know, like, these, there's these different stories have a way of just drawing us in. And you might uh, have shows, your favorite shows on Netflix. Last night, Marcy was watching The Office on Netflix. We watched that, like, every few years or so. Like, that show, it's, like, these ordinary people in an office setting. There's nothing, like, spectacular about any of them, but... Like, we watch it, and we're like, it's so, like, close to real life. There's so many awkward conversations that are taking place, and it's hilarious. And there's something about a good story that just captures our attention. And when we think about what we call God's word or the Bible, Scripture, it's, it's this compelling and dynamic story. And it's a story that we happen to just find ourselves in as we read it. It's formational for our life. It reveals to us what God is like, who God is, what he's up to in this world, and what it means for us here and now. And as we start this series, we've entitled it This Is Us, a popular story that's on, I think, NBC right now. Uh, We want to look at kind of five of the big narrative themes in Scripture. The five kind of big three. And if you read Scripture, what you'll find is that there's a story that has this narrative arc to it. It's moving somewhere. And there, it's, it's a number of different books and different stories that have been pulled together, but it's threaded with this kind of narrative arc that goes from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And so for the next five weeks, we want to look at these, these five themes. The first is creation. I think we've got it on, I think there's a kind of a diagram that shows uh, the narrative arc. Is it there? So we have creation. The second theme is rebellion. The third is calling. The fourth is Jesus. And the fifth is kingdom. So I think the slides are down. Is that right? Slides are down? Oh, question mark. That's not good. You'll just have to listen today. Uh, So if we look at kind of like the big themes of scripture, we have creation, rebellion, uh, calling, Jesus, and then kingdom. And today I want to look at the story of of creation. The creation story takes place in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what you'll find is that there's actually two stories of creation. One in Genesis 1, one that picks up in chapter 2. And they both are kind of telling kind of like how everything's been brought together. So let's start in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Probably a familiar passage with you if you've grown up around church in the beginning, God. And as you read it, and you continue to read through this story, what you'll find is that there's a certain kind of rhythm and cadence to the creation story. You'll see the phrase, and God said, dot, 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 and there was, dot, dot, dot. You'll see... There was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. You'll see that it says that God looks around and says, 
it is good. There are these phrases that keep appearing kind of over, and there's almost this rhythm to them as they go through the creation story. If you would read this passage in its original language, in its Hebrew, what you'd find is that it's actually a, it's actually a poem. It's poetic. And it's important as we, as we read Scripture to understand the genre that Scripture is written. And as we look at the Old Testament, what we find is that there's, there's poetry, there's wisdom books, there's history, there's the, the prophets, there's different genres. But in Genesis chapter 1, there's this, this poem, and, and scholars would say that not only is this poem kind of explaining our origins, but it, it was also used as almost like a liturgical value when God's people would gather together. They would recite this poem, they would sing this song of Genesis chapter 1 to be reminded of what this story is all about. And this story is a saga. A saga is an ancient form of poetic storytelling dealing with persons and events of the distant past, which are passed down orally in the circle of tradition. And as we read this passage in Genesis 1, here's what we find. That the story of creation is about who created. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a story about who and when this story is being told, there's all these primitive religions that have these different competing stories about creation. Oftentimes what happens is the gods are angry, they have this big war, all chaos breaks loose, and the earth is created. But this is a story about a sovereign God who's bringing order out of chaos. He's taking things that are formless and he's forming them, he's bringing order to them, he's putting things in place and in motion in the right spot. There's this sovereign God now that is bringing order to the chaos. There's this God who cares about creation. When it comes to us understanding this story, I love what Walter Brueggemann says. He says, the main theme of the text is this. God and God's creation are bound together in a distinctive and delicate way. This is the presupposition for everything that follows in the Bible. It is the deepest premise for which good news is possible, that God and his creation are bound together by the powerful, gracious movement of God towards that creation. And the text invites the listening community to celebrate that reality. This Genesis 1 was used for God's people when they gathered to celebrate this idea that God has created the earth, that we were created with intention and purpose. There's this God who is created When we look at this as a story, what we'll find is that the main character of the story of Scripture is God. Is God. And now you might think, like, well, of course, right? Like, that's kind of this note. Well, that's that's easy. Like, of course, the, the main character is God. But it's important to note that because oftentimes we get kind of the story of Scripture, uh, we can confuse it a lot. And we are reminded that this is God's story. This is what God is doing in this world. This is who God is. This is what God is up to. God is the main character in the story that we find ourselves in. We're attached to a much bigger story. The creation story goes on, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, 
birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So here we have a little bit of a difference in the creation story. It says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we get to this moment where God now creates mankind. And it says that God says, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. There's something distinct about humanity. There's this primal identity for us as humans. And the early Hebrew writers wanted us to know that to be human was unique. We're created in the image of God. There's this God who is is involved in the creation around us. And in the midst of that has created humanity in his own image, in his own likeness. This word likeness is used again a couple chapters later when it's talking about Adam from Adam and Eve. They have a son named Seth. And the text tells us that Adam's son Seth was made in his likeness. There's this almost like reflection of who Adam is through his son. I think about uh, my life. I have four children, and they look like Marcy and I in different ways. They act like us in different ways. Sometimes they act completely different than us, and we're like, where is that from? We have no idea. Your side, maybe. Uh, <laughs> But I heard, once heard someone say, like, having children is like having your heart jump out of your body and start crawling around on the floor, right? There's this, like, we see this reflection in our children of us. And when the Hebrew writers are talking about God who has created this earth, it says that we're made in his likeness. We're his children. There's something unique about each of us as human beings to be made in the likeness of God, to be made in the image of God. The image of God, especially kind of in the ancient world, uh, this, this idea of image for rulers was important. So like when an, uh, a king would go and he would conquer a foreign country and would kind of set up shop, he wouldn't stay in that foreign country, he would go back home. But to remind the people that were conquered that he was there, he would establish an image of himself and place it in that town. So everyone would see that image and be reminded kind of who's in control here. And then this is the language that's used here, that that God creates us in his image, which means we're here on earth, but we're we're representing who's in charge. To be a human is to be an image bearer of God. This is something that's unique that's put into these creation stories, that us as humans, there's this primal identity that is distinct and unique. To be made as a human is to be made in the image of God. Male and female made in God's image. Uh, Some of the early uh, scholars of of Christianity, we're not sure where this came along, started coming up with this phrase, the Imago Dei. Have you heard of the Imago Dei? What does it mean to be human? It means to be made in the image and likeness of God. So we're these, we bear God's image throughout this world. There's something unique about that. It's this primal identity for humanity. And here's why I think this is important to note that this isn't the creation story. Because God's purposes for us, when we're created in his image, to be human was a good thing. To be human was a good thing. And in our story, there's this God who is active in our world and our creation, who loves us as humans. And we'll talk about why that's so important. We'll see that as we move into the story. 
God thinks very highly of you. Every single one of you. He thinks highly of all of us. He loves us. We're this special part of creation. And what happens sometimes when we talk about the Christian story, we kind of, we forget. We might pick up on the story in chapter 3 where we start talking about rebellion. And the story becomes very much about our own brokenness as humans. And that's so much part of the story, and we'll talk about that next week. But there's this creation in Genesis 1 and 2 about this God who has created us in his image. Every single human has this potential as to bear the image of God here and now. And when we start this story, we start in Genesis 1 and 2. Our primal identity is that God has created us unique in this world. So what does that primal identity mean for us as image bearers? I think the first thing is this, that we find this in the creation story, that as image bearers, we are called to be responsible. We're called to be responsible. We'll find in Chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis and 28, God creates humans, and then something different than the rest of creation. He empowers humans and gives them the ability to manage and to steward. He gives them a responsibility to do something with the creation, to do something with creation. Psalm chapter 8 picks up on this idea. Psalm chapter 8 it says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you made him rule over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. There's this idea of stewardship that comes with being human. We have this divine responsibility to steward the earth, the creation around us. This should always affect how we interact with our neighbors, should affect how we interact with our family. We've been given this divine responsibility to manage, to organize, to take care of the world around us, our communities, our homes. This is a great responsibility, and I think this is a good thing. My daughter Sophia is about to turn 10, uh, she'll be 10 in a few weeks, and we're kind of in this place where she's becoming more and more like what we call a real human, right? Like she moves from this child that we do everything for to taking her own responsibility, and there's something that's so fun for Marcy and I as we watch her grow and develop. Uh, we're able to hand things off to her and entrust her, and we do that because we love her, and we, want to, we talk about how we want to raise adults. We don't want to just raise children. We want... We want to raise adults who become, our, our children become fully functional and independent and, and confident and creative. And so like we give her more and more responsibility as she gets older because we love her and we, we want her to have this amazing life where she's good at making decisions and she's creative. And so we're in this process of slowly giving more and more responsibility to Sophia as she grows up. But that responsibility is passed on to her because we trust her and we love her and we want what's best for her. And the fact that in this story, God creates humans and then says, rule over this and steward that and manage this, shows us that there's this God who loves us, who trusts us, who empowers us to be image bearers here on earth. To be an image bearer is to be responsible with the world around us. There's this great responsibility that we're, we're given. 
The second thing is that image bearers, image bearers are resourceful. Image bearers are resourceful. Genesis 1 through 27 says to be fruitful and increase. Be fruitful and multiply. There's a lot of people in this church that are taking that very serious right now. We're called to be fruitful and to multiply. But then in Genesis chapter 2, when God places Adam in the garden, he says to work it and to take care of it. We find that he's given these tasks of, of ordering and naming the animals. I always wonder, like, what would that have been like? Like, you, you're in charge of naming all of the animals. Like, observing that. And, like, sometimes that seems like it's really fun. Sometimes that's like, that's a lot of work. But this is in Genesis chapter 2. He's given work. He's given a task. And he's told to do certain things. Genesis chapter 2, what we find is that we're, we're called to manage, to organize, to create, to name, design, work, to till, to do all of these different things. And it's work. But it's a sacred task for us as humans. And I know it's hard to say this with Monday being tomorrow, but like when we go to work, what we're doing is we're, we're following these Genesis 1 and 2 instincts where God says, I've created you and designed you with gifts and passions. And like you use them, you put those things to work, and you be resourceful. And that makes this world a better place. You're joining in this creation of the world around us with these sacred tasks. Genesis 1 and 2. I always joke that this is why some people get fired up about Excel spreadsheets. Right? Like we all have these different like disciplines. We all have these different gifts that we're given to be used for God's glory. And oftentimes we forget that. Oftentimes we think that work is the curse, right? But when the curse does come in Genesis 3, work isn't cursed. The ground is. Work is this sacred calling. We're called to be resourceful and responsible with our everyday tasks. I don't think we often charge into work thinking that. What I'm doing here is actually a spiritual responsibility. I have this friend uh, that lives in Texas and Dallas. My wife and I lived in Dallas for a few years. And uh, he was kind of like, you know, not, not super big church-going guy. I worked for the Texas Rangers in their corporate sales office. And uh, I'd, I'd go to get, he'd let me go to Texas Ranger games, which was always fun. Um, and uh, he'd always introduce me as, uh, you know, his pastor, the guy that does all the spiritual stuff. And, and, uh, and so, like, I'd always start every conversation I felt like behind the eight ball. Like, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> like, I'm the pastor. Now no one's going to want to talk to me. And, uh, and that happens sometimes. Like, I'll be, you know, out somewhere having lunch with someone, and they find out I'm a pastor, and then the conversation just radically changes. Um, <laughs> But one thing that my friend would always talk about, he would always introduce me as like the pastor who does the spiritual things, but then he would always say like, I want to get more involved in, you know, doing like spiritual ministry stuff, but like I don't really know what else, you know, I'm in office all day, I'm working in sales, like I can't do like what you get to do, like you're, you know, and, and I would say like, yeah, in some ways you can't, but in other ways, like with what you get to do every single day, you get to wake up, you get to go and to be at this ballpark with hundreds of other employees, and you interact with people every single day that I don't have an audience with. And it, it's possible that you might have more opportunity to be in tune with what God is doing because you've been placed in this place, given these tasks, these everyday, ordinary tasks that you love to do, that you're good at, that they're, they're hard, but it's hard work. Like you have unbelievable opportunity to be in tune with what God is doing right here and right now. And I think that sometimes we, we forget about that with work. We, we compartmentalize like our spiritual life, right? Like we're, 
We're going to be resourceful, but then we do like missions over here or work over here. And that's good. But these everyday tasks that we're called to, our, our spiritual life should just invade that every single day. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, there's an opportunity to join God and his work in our world. So whether you're a dentist or in sales or a teacher, whatever you're doing, we have these Genesis 1 and 2 tasks that have been placed inside of us to join God in ordering the world, to taking what we've been given and multiplying it and creating more of it for the good of the world around us. To be an image bearer is to be resourceful with what God has given us here and now. The third thing we find as image bearers, we are called to be relational. We're called to be relational. So we're called to be uh, resourceful, uh, called to be responsible, and called to be relational. I feel like I could do a whole sermon on this. God says, let us make man in our image. There's all sorts of discussion of what our means. Like if God's talking, like he's using third person, what is it, third person singular? Some of the teachers help me out, our. Uh, so, so what most people will say is like what, what's happening here is this idea of the Trinity is present in the creation story. We're not really sure what that means, but, but God is community. There's God, there's the, the Son, Jesus, there's the Holy Spirit. There's this, God is this relational God who creates us out of relationship. And in this creation story, there's these kind of four relationships that are set in place that we find in the Garden of Eden. The first relationship is between us and God. What we find is Adam. Uh, Adam walks with the Lord. In the cool of the day, Adam has this relationship with God where they're communicating. They're, they're, to be a human is, is to be a spiritual being. We have this connection with our creator with God. So we read the story, we also find that there's a relationship between uh, humans. God creates, sees that Adam's alone, and it's not good for Adam to be alone, and he creates Eve. And Eve is in the story, and, and Adam and Eve uh, in the story have harmony in their relationship in Genesis 2. They're living in harmony with each other. And I believe that we're created uh, to live in harmony with our fellow people. There's this spiritual relationship, but there's also this social aspect. We're relational people. We do life with others around us. Then there's this kind of like internal relationship. We find that Adam is an emotional being. And it says in Genesis 2 that, you know, he's, he's with Eve and they're naked, but he feels no shame. And so there's this emotional thing inside of him that's at peace. He's at peace with himself. There's this shalom that's internal. When we think about us as humans, we're spiritual beings, we're social, but we're also very emotional. Even the Germans among us, we're, we're all emotional people, right? Some of us like to hide it. But the truth is that we have this in relationship with ourselves. There's something internal that we know when it's off and we know when we're at peace. And in the creation story, Adam is at peace with himself. And then there's this relationship with the creation around us. As we kind of talked about that with responsibility and resourcefulness. We have a relationship with the creation, with the world around us. And there's this relationship of peace that we find Adam as he's tilling the garden. And I would say that how we treat kind of the creation around us reveals what we think about our creator. So there's this relationship, this physical aspect to, to how we interact with the world around us. So there's a spiritual element, this social, this emotional, and this physical. We're, we're relational beings created for relationships. 
as image bearers. We're relational people. Next week we'll talk about kind of like what happens when that gets thrown off, those relationships. As image bearers, we've been given these divine tasks here and now. To be human is something that is good. And as we move through the scripture, and as we start looking at these big themes, I kind of want to move all the way to the end of the scriptures. Because I think something important happens about this idea of the Imago Dei, the idea that we're created in the image of God. And so I'm going to kind of skip through some things that are very important that we'll talk about uh, to get to the end. But as we consider kind of the arc of scripture, what we find is like, you know, after Genesis 3, there's this rebellion, there's brokenness that enters the story. We start to miss the mark of what God wants. Then he calls a people. He calls a people to represent him. And there's these ups and these downs. And eventually we get to Jesus. And what we find is that everything in the story points to Jesus. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is pointing to Jesus, this incarnation of God here and now. And Jesus, we have the story of the cross and resurrection. But after the story of the cross and resurrection, we get to this thing called the kingdom. And that's kind of where I want to end up today. This thing called the kingdom. Not to move past those other things because those are so important, but to talk about the kingdom because when the early church set out to start understanding what God is doing in this world, they start using this language of the image of God in everything that they do. And they start realizing that we're created in the image of God. And this is what we were designed to be as humans, as, as image bearers of God in this earth. There's something unique and significant about that. And one of the languages picked up by this man named Paul. He was known as Saul to the Hebrews. He was known as Paul to the Greeks and the Romans. And he starts to use this language of image bearer in his writings. And as he's trying to navigate, here's what God's up to in this world, here's what he's done through Jesus. He uses the language of image bearer. In Colossians chapter 1, he says this, of Jesus, that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There's that language again. So he starts to say, like, this idea of us being image bearers, Paul's like, what we've realized is that we're not good at bearing the image of God. We're messed up. We're broken. We've been called to do this. And as Paul would say, that he's the chief among sinners. But then he says, there's this prototype we have this image, this picture of what that image is of God is supposed to look like. And it's Jesus. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. We, we kind of prioritize everything that is in this world around us, Jesus. Because he's the image of the invisible God. He's the revelation of what God is like in this world. Paul says, you want to know what God is like? We look to Jesus. We spend time in the Gospels reading of the life of Jesus, and what we find is this unbelievably compassionate person who sacrifices his life for others. We see these miraculous stories of Jesus seeing people who are sick and healing them, seeing people who are hungry and feeding them, seeing people who are blind and giving them sight. These glimpses of, uh, of when God is in control, here's what happens. As we look at the image of the invisible God in Jesus, what we find is the prototype for us as image bearers in this world. So we talk about this thing, this process of discipleship, which is becoming more Christ-like in everything that we do. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
He is the prototype image bearer of who God is in this world, the Son of God. Paul goes on to say this in Colossians. Moving from Colossians to, to chapter 3, he says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So this idea of this returning to being this bearer of God's image. In Christ, in Christ we have died and our life is now hidden in him. And when Christ appears, we appear with him in glory. He goes on to say, do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Think about that line. You're being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator in Christ. He goes on to say, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. It's a powerful line. If we move back to the story, he's talking about this, when we're created in the image of God. Our primal identity as humans to bear God's image. Genesis 3, that story gets skewed. But now in Christ, to be a follower of Jesus is to be returning to this bearer of God's image here and now. Being renewed in the image of our creator. Something significant happening here in Christ. And I think what also is interesting is he talks about all of these ways that humanity divides itself. Ethnicity, nationality, all these different things that we use, these social barriers start to break down when we live life in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. He uses this phrase to say the new humanity. There is no Greek or Jew, barbarian or Scythian. This doesn't mean that we're not a diverse people. It means that we celebrate our diversity. But in Christ, there's this new humanity where we look at other people and we see them as human and we see them as bearers of God's image. And we see them as human, and our response is love. We see other people, we realize they're made in the image of God. And there's something inside of them that God is calling all people back to, to bear their image, to bear the image of God. And it changes how we interact with everyone, our neighbors, even Seahawk fans, <laughs> people we despise. We realize they're human. <laughs> they're human, and they're made in the image of God. And we interact with them in a way that is calling that image back to be like Christ, to be like who you've been created to be. And then finally, Paul goes on to say these beautiful words in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's this idea of transformation. Transformation. We talk about us individually, corporately as a church. The invitation is to allow God to transform us into his image. I'm not sure where you're at in your journey. 
don't know if you've kind of grown up knowing this story. Uh, I don't know if this story is brand new to you. You've never heard it. But when we talk about this gospel message, that God is at work in this world, that Jesus came to this earth to reveal what God is like, that Jesus came to the cross, takes all of the punishment for our brokenness and sin and absorbs it, conquers death and sin, rises from the dead, but then calls us, calls us to a certain kind of life. It's to bear the image of God to others. And we talk about this story because we want to invite you to live a life of significance. To say, Lord, I was created for this divine purpose, and I want to live into that. This message of salvation isn't just to be saved from something, it's but to be saved for something. And when we live our life reflecting our creator, our life becomes a gift to the world around us. I don't know where you're at today in your own journey. But today the invitation is this. To become a bearer of God's image. That in Christ, the image of God would be renewed in you. And it would change how you journey in this world. That you would have purpose. That you'd have significance. That you would see every day as a sacred task. The band's going to come up and spend time reflecting. Uh, we're going to move to communion. But a couple of questions just to reflect on when it comes to this creation story, when it comes to us being created in the image of God. What is keeping you from being responsible, resourceful, and relational bearers of God's image? What is keeping you from doing that? From living into this primal identity? What are the things that are keeping you from that? Another thing to reflect on. What do you need to surrender to Christ today? In Christ, we are the new creation. In Christ, we are being transformed to the image of our creator. Given a sacred calling, a sacred task. What is it today that you need to surrender to Christ? Uh, maybe, maybe you've never come to this moment of surrender. And it all starts right now. And you need to step into this new identity, this new humanity. Maybe you're at a place where you know this story, but you realize that the way that you're living isn't a reflection of what God's created you to be. And there's things you need to lay at the feet of Jesus today as we head to communion. Each week we celebrate communion. Uh, communion represents the story that we're a part of. We take the elements, we take bread. Bread represents the incarnation, the body of Christ, the image of the invisible God who lived, who died, who conquered death and was resurrected to life. When we take this bread, we break it, and we're reminded that life comes from God's body broken. And then we take a cup of juice, and we're reminded that God's blood was shed on the cross. As we take this bread and we take this cup, we remember and proclaim the story that we're all part of. As we move to communion today, the invitation is to allow God to transform you, to renew you to the image of him, to be bearers of his image. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this old story. Lord, this reminder that you were involved in our lives. That you created us 
as unique. You created us with purpose. You created us as your children. The Imago Dei. Lord, we have great responsibility. You call us to be resourceful. You call us to be relational. Lord, today I pray that we would consider those tasks. Lord, that you would reveal things in our life that are hindering uh, your work. Lord, that you would inspire us to be a certain kind of people here and now. We come to the communion table, Lord, today, thankful and remembering. And we proclaim that you haven't given up on this world, but that you're involved, that you have a rescue plan in place, that you've invited us into this story of your salvation and redemption, that you've entrusted us with tasks, that in the midst of our ordinary lives, you do something extraordinary through us. We give you this time, Lord, in your son's name we pray. Amen. When you're ready, feel free to move to communion.